Kate Mann grew up copping regular cruel comments about her body size. Decades later, she discovered fat activism and the body acceptance movement, which argues that we should embrace a diverse range of sizes and shapes. That's had some success, and there's also growing understanding that you can be healthy at different weights. But a lot of us still put ourselves through hell trying to change our body shape and shrink it. Why does body weight remain such an enduring bias? Kate Mann now studies moral philosophy, and this is one area she explores in her role as an associate professor of philosophy at Cornell University. Her new book is called Unshrinking, How to Fight Fat Phobia. Kate, great to have you on Life Matters today. Thanks so much for having me. You write that the one thing you dreaded being called was fat. Why was that so confronting for you? It was very interesting. I had written two books on misogyny where I argued that girls and women face all of these patriarchal norms and expectations, which police and enforce them, uh, visiting women with hatred and hostility. So I was really no stranger to the topic of women being faced with hostile reactions. But there was something about being called fat, which felt particularly shaming, particularly isolating and particularly lonely. Yeah, and it's something that a lot of people can identify with at different uh, stages of their childhood and youth and sometimes throughout their entire life. You've written yeah, absolutely. Very, yeah, the book has is, is, uh, got lots of um, personal perspectives that really bring home some of the issues you're exploring. Could you tell us a bit about how your weight and shape has impacted your life, the choices you've made about what to do or not to do? Yeah, Sure. So I grew up in Australia. Uh, listeners might be able to hear that I have a kind of silly hybrid Australian-American uh, accent since I've been in the States for nearly two decades. But growing up, I was often subject to really cruel forms of bullying on the basis of my body size. And I was a merely chubby child. Um, I can't even imagine what heavier children face at the hands of schoolyard bullying. But it really had an impact on how I saw myself on how I felt about my body. And it really had an impact on me going on many extreme diets throughout my life that I would argue uh, ultimately didn't serve me and which were quite destructive and pernicious. And you write very uh, evocatively about a particular time in your life when you realised you might have to change things after you had your daughter. That's right. It's almost a cliche, I have to admit, but motherhood really did change the way that I saw my relationship with food and my own body image and my own fatness. There was just something about seeing my little girl look so carefully at what I was eating or not eating. And I realized that I couldn't visit those same issues on her. And I really had to sort my head out regarding my body. So a lot of this particular book came from a place of having felt so much shame about my body for decades really trying to lift my head out of that shameful posture and find solidarity with other people who do live in larger bodies, or I argue we should use the fat, the word fat in a way that's completely unashamed and matter of fact. Um, and for those of us who are larger or do identify as fat, this idea of being unashamed, unapologetic and unshrinking was how I wanted to model 
things from my now four-year-old daughter. And you talk too about how difficult that is because intellectually you can believe one thing, but these attitudes are so entrenched. Tell us about the Harvard study a few years ago that investigated which biases were getting worse and which were getting better. Yeah, it was very interesting. So Harvard researchers studied various forms of implicit and explicit bias. They were based on body size, age, sexuality, race, skin tone, and also disability. And they found that implicit bias was getting better in every category except body weight. So fat phobia was the only form of bias that appeared to be increasing out of the ones that they studied. And it was also the form of explicit bias that was decreasing the most slowly. So I want to be clear Unfortunately, there's never any last acceptable form of prejudice. We see many forms of prejudice proliferate in society today. But it does seem to me that fat phobia is actively increasing. And also that it's a form of bias and bigotry that oftentimes people are quite complacent about, even when they're otherwise committed to an inclusive and kind attitude towards other people. Well, it was disturbing to read some of the explicit comments that doctors have made about fat people. What kind of impact is that having in the healthcare sector? Yeah, I want to be clear here. This isn't just implicit bias, it's explicit bias on the part of physicians. So physicians will actually tick the box that says that they're less likely to want to help fat patients, that They regard fat patients as a waste of their time, that they view fat patients as more annoying. Um, And this is something which they're just coming out and saying on surveys. We also see nurses saying, and this is about a quarter of nurses, say that they find fat bodies repulsive and many nurses also don't want to touch fat patients. So this is a really gnarly form of bias, which again appears to be on the rise and It means that fat patients are often subject to both material barriers, so various aspects of the healthcare system that don't necessarily suit larger bodies, everything from a lack of blood pressure cuffs and needles and examination tables and so on that are suitable for larger bodies, but also really being fat shamed at the doctor's office and also told that all of your symptoms are attributable to your weight when that often causes doctors to ignore or miss the real cause of people's symptoms. That really confounds. So in the book, I get sorry. into, um, oh, sorry, I was just going to say, I, I get into these cases of cancer patients who were just told to lose weight. And um, it ended up being uh, that their cancer was missed for months and months. Uh, in one case, it was too late to save this patient because the doctor couldn't see past her weight and just told her to lose weight rather than seeing that she had this huge tumour that needed urgent care. Well, and that really confounds our ideas about what are the health risks of uh, having a larger body or being fat, doesn't it? Because you you argue quite strongly that uh, our assumptions about the, the, the link between poor health and uh, body size are often wrong. Yeah, that's right. I mean, basically the relationship between health and weight can be represented by a U-shaped curve where people in the quote-unquote overweight category based on the BMI charts, which I'm highly critical of, but it's a useful reference point here, people in the overweight category actually have the lowest mortality risk, statistically speaking. 
And people in the even moderately obese category, so a BMI between 30 and 35, have a similar risk profile to people in the quote-unquote normal weight category. So oftentimes people who are heavier are not, statistically speaking, at higher risk for health problems. And although we do see correlations between being either underweight or very heavy and certain health problems, we should also be careful about assuming that that is causation rather than mere correlation, because as we've just canvassed, people who are very heavy often are not receiving adequate medical care. They're subject to the stress of stigma. They're often avoiding healthcare altogether because as people get heavier, studies show that they avoid healthcare because they're so weight shamed at the doctor. And they also are subject to what is known in the literature as weight cycling, where these are the people being put on diets, losing some weight, and then almost inevitably regaining it, because that's what happens when people diet uh, for the most part, weight is regained. Um, and weight cycling turns out to have independent health harms. So there are lots of reasons why very heavy people do have certain health problems, but not all of them, at least, are attributable just to having adipose tissue. We're speaking with Kate Mann, who's an Associate Professor of Philosophy at Cornell University, a very deep thinker about these issues on a personal and political and structural level, and the author of a book called Unshrinking, How to Face Fat Phobia. Kate, I was a bit stunned to read some of the examples that you cite of casual fat phobia in, in academic spheres as well as other spheres, for example, philosophical thought experiments. Can you quickly outline one of those for us? Yeah, sure. So I teach moral philosophy as my bread and butter. And one of the first experiments that we give students when they enter the classroom is a thought experiment known as the trolley problem, where basically we're asking, should you push a lever to cause the death of uh, one person rather than five? And it's, you know, just about pushing levers. And most people say, that you should uh, pull the lever to um, cause harm to fewer people. But then there's this variant of the thought experiment where instead of pulling a lever to cause a death to one person where the trolley runs them over, you're pushing a fat person from a bridge. So it's called the fat man experiment, where the idea is you push a fat man off a bridge and it's sort of comical, his body is so large it stops the trolley. So you're killing one to save five people who the trolley would otherwise run over. And it's disturbing because this is a thought experiment which often elicits laughter and a sense of hilarity, like it's so funny that this person is in a larger body. We don't have a sense of sobriety and tragedy about these kinds of cases. Even when it comes to moral philosophy, fat bodies are regarded as figures of fun and not people who should be subject to humane, compassionate and frankly, um, moral treatment, even in our own classrooms. It's fascinating too, looking at all the studies you've referenced uh, that show that fat people get paid less, they're less likely to be employed. Uh, people assume that they are not as smart as thin people, mm -hmm. you know, just a whole range of uh, very basic biases. But you also point out that our attitudes to fatness have changed over time. So you point to the art of Rubens and further back to ancient fertility gods. I think of the, um, oh, what's it, the Venus of Willenberg? Venus or? of Willendorf. That's mm -hmm. right, yeah. It's a huge, beautiful, curving female body. How did we yeah. get to this modern sense of disgust with bigger bodies? Yeah, it's an interestingly recent form of bias, uh, fat phobia, because although there are elements of fat phobic thought, 
historically, for the most part, the fat body was often viewed as a sign of prosperity and wealth and luxury and abundance up until the mid 18th century. And then, based on work by Sabrina Strings, a sociologist, what we find is that there was an association drawn between fatness and blackness by white colonists who were trying to justify the burgeoning transatlantic slave trade. And when the association between fatness and blackness was drawn to try to differentiate white bodies from the black bodies who were being enslaved so brutally and in ever burgeoning numbers, that was when fatness fell into real systematic disrepute. So Strings and other scholars like Deshaun Harrison argue, to my mind, very persuasively that anti-fatness is really rooted in anti-blackness, and then it was exported to other countries largely via Western media. So lots of countries were very positive about the fat body until you get things like American TV shows like Friends showing up in countries where upon a few years later you find a spate of people suffering, especially girls, from eating disorders. So fat phobia is really really an Anglo-American product. It's a byproduct of racism and it was an export to most countries in the world um, via that Western media. Thanks, Rachel. Thanks, Monica. So let's get into the nitty gritty because you do talk uh, about some of the things that would have to change, even if we magically woke up free of fat phobia, there's so Mm -hmm. many uh, structural and practical issues in the world that would need to be uh, rebuilt to fully accommodate fat bodies. And one of the critiques of that idea is that it would uh, cost everybody to accommodate uh, larger bodies. What's your response to that argument? Yeah, I mean, I think we sometimes have to pay costs in order to have basic humane accommodation of all bodies. So I think there's an analogy between disability rights here and rights for people in larger bodies where, yes, it can cost something to make the world more accessible to everybody. um, And those costs can sometimes be exaggerated or overhyped in various ways. Oftentimes they're not particularly prohibitive. Um, You know, to give you one example, making a classroom accommodating of all bodies is not that difficult. It involves getting some chairs without arms in the classroom. But even when there are real costs involved, this is what we ought to do morally for the sake of justice and the basic principle that everyone deserves accommodation and to have access to public and private spaces. Kate Mann, it's been fascinating speaking with you today. Thanks so much for your time on Life Matters. Thanks so much for having me. Just a joy. Kate is an Associate Professor of Philosophy at Cornell University and the author of a book called Unshrinking, How to Face Fat Phobia. And it is such a fascinating read. It really makes you question a lot of the the undercurrents of our culture and our own personal views that we might not have been aware of. Think bigger about the world we live in. Ask your smart speaker to play ABC RN.